Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. The Morningstar Investment Conference for Investment Professionals will be held virtually this year on September 16th and 17th. We're offering the same research, analysis, and insight for investment professionals you'd get at the live event for a reduced price of $149. And the best part is you can join us from wherever you are. For more information or to register, visit go.morningstar.com MIC. Again, that website is go.morningstar.com MIC. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz uncovers the places income seekers should search. Mark Miller discusses the pandemic's impact on Social Security and Medicare. Our analysts share three bond fund picks. Ben Johnson maps out the growing strategic beta fund landscape. And Christine Benz encourages retirees to be flexible with their spending plans. Let's get started. Here are Susan Jubinski and Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jubinski with Morningstar.com. We're in an era of ultra-low yields, and that is leaving many retirees scrambling for income. Here with me today to discuss some income ideas that retirees should be very careful with is Christine Benz. Christine is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Christine, thanks for being here today. Susan, it's always great to be here. Thank you. Now, before we get into the specifics, let's talk a little bit about the backdrop today, which is this ultra-low yield environment. Let's talk a little bit about that and why we're here and how we got here. Well, it largely owes to the pandemic and the economic after effects of the pandemic. So the Federal Reserve has taken interest rates way, way down. So part of it is Fed policy. Part of it is is investor demand. So what we saw during the market shock, especially in the first quarter, was that some investors realized they had been underappreciating the role of safe securities in their portfolio. So we've seen demand for high quality bonds, cash instruments spike, and that has the net effect of pushing yields down. People who want a higher yield have no choice but to gravitate to higher risk investments. So what do you suggest that retirees do in this type of environment, the retiree who's looking to generate that cash flow? I'm a big believer in thinking about cash flow versus yield or income. And the key reason, Susan, is that I think you want to think about your cash flows in retirement as another way that you diversify. So just as you diversify your portfolio by holding different asset classes, I think you want to think about building a diversified cash flow in retirement as well. So maybe you do include income producers as a component of the cash flow you rely on to meet your living expenses expenses. But I think that given very low yields today, we have to be realistic and understand that the only way that most retirees will be able to derive a livable cash flow from their portfolios is to periodically harvest some appreciated securities and use those for living expenses as well. We've had a tremendous long-running rally in the equity market. We have had periodic shocks such as what we had in the first quarter. But my view is that for many retirees today, their best source of cash flow, maybe for the next couple of years, would be to harvest appreciated equity holdings, assuming that they sat tight with their equity positions through the turbulence, which is not to say they should sell all of their equity holdings, but certainly use them as a component of their cash flows. Now let's pivot a little bit and talk about some of those income producing investments that retirees or income seekers in general may be looking 
to at this low uh, interest rate climate time. Um, what, what are some things that you think investors should really avoid with a 10-foot pole? Right. So I would say it's a broad basket, but there are a few different investment types that fall under this umbrella of don't touch with a 10-foot pole. So one would be structured notes. And our colleagues, Amy Arnott and Machik Kawara, wrote a great research piece about these products, kind of diving into the, the pros and cons and mainly the cons. Um, structured notes, business development corporations, as well as non-traded REITs or private REITs. I would say that the commonality is that all of these investments tend to have high incomes attached to them, so they can be tantalizing from that standpoint. But they're also opaque, so they can be difficult to understand what, what you're getting, which is always uh, a red flag if you're looking at an investment type. So they can be complicated and opaque. They can also be illiquid in periods of market duress. And that's what we've seen with a lot of these categories through this recent market shock um, where investors have wanted to get out. In some cases, maybe uh, the volatility was more than they expected, or in some cases, they've had yield reductions. Well, guess what? They can't readily get out. So all of these uh, investment types do have attractive yields, but I would say avoid them and really understand, you know, anytime you see a double-digit yield on something in an era where high-quality bond yields are in the very low single digits, understand that you probably will not get that very high yield, and you'll certainly get a lot of volatility along with it as well. Now, there's a second group of investment options for income seekers that you say are more handled with care, not necessarily avoid entirely. Just make sure these are good fits for your time horizon and your risk tolerance. What, what are some examples of some of those? Right. This would be the whole category of lower quality bonds. So this would encompass high yield or junk bonds or junk bond funds, bank loan or floating rate investments, um, multi-sector bond funds, which are a little less junky than the first two groups, emerging markets, bonds, any of those categories where you do have higher yields, but also lower quality and higher risk. I would say just make sure that even as you may want to add them to your portfolio to goose your overall yield, I think you want to be careful to right size your allocation to them. So I would typically think of fairly low um, overall positions in all of these categories. You also want to make sure that you have a really long time horizon for them. So in my bucket portfolios, to the extent that I have these categories, I've typically held them alongside equities and thought of them as kind of equity alternatives. Because when we look at the risk reward characteristics of these products, that's kind of where they're aligned, more so with equities than with high quality bonds. So you want to make sure you have a long time horizon just as you would with the equity holdings in your portfolio. Now, Christine, what about master limited partnerships specifically? Are they in the don't touch with a 10 foot pole bucket or are they in the possibly tread with care bucket? 
I would uh, say that this might be a category that investors could consider in small doses. By no means is this a must-have category for most investors. These are companies that operate pipelines, own and operate uh, energy pipelines. And what we've seen in this market shock, as well as in the financial crisis, um, was a, a significant amount of volatility, some dividend cuts that these companies are um, economically sensitive. They tend to run into trouble in periods of economic weakness like what we're living through right now. Incomes can be really attractive, which is why people like them. There are also some tax efficiency characteristics if you hold them in a taxable account. But generally speaking, I think investors want to be mindful of what a narrow category this is. So to the extent that they own them and perhaps they're doing a little bit of contrarian investing given how beaten up MLPs are today, um, just really do right size the position and own them with a nice long time horizon in mind. Christine, thank you so much for your income insights today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar.com. Thank you for tuning in. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Now, contributor Mark Miller discusses the pandemic's impact on Social Security and Medicare. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. The current pandemic and its related economic crisis have sparked concerns about the future of Social Security and Medicare. Joining me to discuss that topic is Morningstar contributor and author, Mark Miller. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Christine. So, Mark, let's discuss the relationship between this current economic downturn and Social Security. What are perceived to be sort of the biggest threats potentially to the financial health of Social Security? Well, you know, I guess I'd like to say before I even answer that question that this is not at the top of my list of worries about retirement security right now. It is there are some concerns that we'll get to, but um, you know, really a much bigger worry to me right now is the whole retirement savings system. You know, the uh, the market drop back February and March, according to the Center on Retirement Research, um, took about four point four trillion out of DC plans and IRA plans, uh, IRA accounts. And a lot of that. It's a kind of a breathtaking figure. Now, a lot of that has probably come back as the market has rebounded, but you got to think a lot of damage was done there for anybody who made bad decisions during that period. If you look at the uh, CARES Act and the possibility of widespread uh, withdrawals under the, the very you know liberal withdrawal rules of that law, you know I think there's a good chance a lot of people are going to be draining their accounts. Uh, employer matches have been suspended on a pretty wide basis. I'm really worried about uh, widespread 401k plan terminations among small employers. You know, if we, if we see a big wave of, of bankruptcies and liquidations of companies, small firms primarily, we're going to see a lot of small 401k plans terminated. So by comparison, I, I would say Social Security and Medicare are absolute rocks of stability. <laughs> Good point. So um, apart from those real concerns about people's retirement savings, um, there are some knock-on effects when we do encounter this sort of downturn, um, some implications potentially for Medicare and Social Security. I would think yes. uh, just our big unemployment numbers and, and declining tax receipts would potentially have implications. 
Right. So for Social Security, the uh, actuaries of Social Security are saying that the downturn in payroll tax collections could move forward the date when Social Security's trust fund becomes exhausted by a year or two. There are some other forecasts that are a little more aggressive uh, that, you know, that the depletion date could move up even further than, you know, from 2035 down to the trustees are saying, sorry, the actuaries are saying 2033, you know, could it be sooner? Much will depend on how long and deep the downturn is. But, uh, you know, with a program this large, it's just a gigantic system. It's, you know, think of it as sort of in the classic analogy of the battleship takes a, you know, it's slow to turn, slow to stop. So, you know, it's not, it's not something that is going to be affected overnight uh, in a dramatic way to the tune of, you know, four, four, four four 4.4 trillion coming out of DC plans and the like. So yes, there are reasons to be concerned, but you know, there, I think still it's a manageable situation. How would you address concerns from pre-retirees who might say, well, maybe should I speed up my filing from Social Security if I'd rather sort of get my benefits started and lock them in? Um, what do you think about people sort of doing that kind of strategizing because they're worried about Social Security? Well, I, I don't think it's a way to think about it. I would think about it more from the personal financial standpoint of what's right for you in terms of the, what income needs you're going to have how long you will be able to work, what kind of savings you have available. What's more, you don't really lock, there's no such thing as locking it in. The, the, the really, uh, <laughs> the, the, the reality of the 2035 exhaustion date is that when if we get to that, and I don't believe we will, um, that would imply a cut in benefits across the board of 20% for including people receiving benefits. So just filing doesn't protect you from a cut down the road. So it, it's not an available strategy. There's no protection from that. And that actually is why I think it's not going to happen. I cannot possibly imagine Congress allowing a 20% cut in everybody's Social Security benefits. It's just, to me, unimaginable that that's going to be permitted from a political standpoint. I think um, some younger investors and financial advisors who work with them might automatically incorporate some type of reduction in their social security benefits, um, especially those who are higher net worth, um, higher income mm -hmm. types. Right. So how should younger investors think about that in terms of well, how much of a social security benefit to expect? Right. So if you, if you want to think about that question from like a conservative planning standpoint, right? Like a lot of planners like to build their plans out for clients, assuming they'll all live to age 100. Well, that's a very conservative way to plan. They won't all make it to 100, unfortunately. And if you want to go with a conservative assumption that Social Security is going to get cut 20% in 2035, you know, go for it. But, you know, it's going to make your plan a lot more challenging. It's, it's going to be it's quite an eye opener when you when you give Social Security that kind of a haircut. So if you want to plan with that conservative assumption, great. The worst thing that will happen is you will be that much ahead when that doesn't happen. <laughs> We've largely talked about Social Security here so far, but Medicare-related program. Um, let's talk about the health, the financial health of Medicare and whether you think there are implications from the yeah. pandemic for Medicare. Yeah, this is interesting because Medicare's funding is more complicated than Social Security. Social Security is funded mostly from the payroll tax. It also receives 
some some income from interest on bonds and the trust fund and and from taxes on Social Security benefits, but it's primarily the payroll tax. Medicare, because it has several parts, um, it's the parts are funded differently. Um, it's the the large source of of funding is general federal revenue, about forty three percent. Payroll taxes are about thirty six percent, and beneficiary premiums about fifteen percent. And it breaks out differently by parts of the program. So if you take it in pieces, first you have Part A, which is the hospitalization uh, feature, and that is financed mainly through a 2.9% payroll tax that's split by employers and employees, similar to the Social Security tax is just collected from, from paychecks. Um, part B, which is outpatient services, is funded through general government, re- government revenue, about 70%, and the rest from beneficiary premiums. Uh, part D, prescription drugs, is similar to Part B. It's, it's a mix of general revenue and beneficiary premiums. So you can't just say, well, Medicare's finances will be affected this way across the board. It's important to break it down and look at the different parts. And in short, I would just say that um, that Part A hospital insurance trust fund is a, a key area of concern right now. And we could talk a little bit more about that if you would like. Well, let's talk about that trust fund. What are the possible actions? It sounds like Congress will have to take action on that. Yeah, the the hospital insurance trust fund is kind of volatile. It's the forecast for its financial health often bounces around quite a lot uh, from not from year to year, but, you know, over time, you can see this on charts. And before the pandemic, um, the fund was forecast to be exhausted in 2026. So not all that far from now. And at that point, Medicare would have enough money coming in from payroll taxes to meet about 90% of its costs. So something would need to be done there. Um, We're likely to see a a revised forecast when the Medicare trustees issue their next report on the program uh, next spring. And like I say, it's going to be something Congress is going to need to address. It's a little uncertain uh, how exactly this will play out, but most of the experts I talk to do expect that that uh, exhaustion date might move up by a year or two. So uh, of all the things we're talking about, this might be the most immediate problem that needs to be addressed uh, by Congress. And how about Medicare premiums? Do you expect to see those move up further still? Well, Medicare premiums, Part B premiums, were already jumping pretty sharply uh, before the pandemic. Um Part B premium has risen 38% since 2015, and uh, the trustees were predicting more escalation in those in those rates uh, before the pandemic. So I think it's reasonable to think we'll see some uh, bigger than general inflation increases in the Part B premium in the years ahead. Okay, Mark, important discussion. It's always great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, Morningstar Research Services analysts share three bond fund picks. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar.com. Morningstar recently awarded its 2020 Awards for Investing Excellence. Today, we're looking at three bond funds run by managers who were nominated this year. 
Metropolitan West Total Return Bond Fund is a great fund for investors because it really exemplifies what a Core Plus fund is capable of. The fund is managed by some of the most experienced and skilled managers in the industry, Tad Ravel, Steve Kane, Laird Landman, and Brian Whalen. This team was recently nominated for a Morningstar Investing Excellence Award and previously won Morningstar Fund Manager of the Year Award in 2005. What makes this team stand out is their commitment to value investing principles, specifically their willingness to buy discounted bonds and sell pricier ones, even if this makes their short-term performance look different from peers. Many competitors use a similar approach, but it's elevated here by both the manager's experience and their commitment to it, as well as the impressive supporting research capabilities at the firm. Indeed, the team has demonstrated success across a variety of sectors, including corporate bonds, as well as both agency and non-agency mortgages, but also across time periods, definitely navigating a variety of difficult micro environments, including 2008 and this most recent March 2020 sell-off. Indeed, over the trailing 15 years, the fund has beaten nearly every peer in the intermediate core plus bond category. Mary Ellen Stanek, lead manager of Baird Aggregate Bond, has demonstrated exemplary stewardship and generated strong returns for investors over her long career. Over the nearly two decades she has managed the strategy, Stanek has been a staunch advocate for low fees, circumspect portfolio construction, and incentives to encourage career development among younger analysts on her team. Stanek and her team have shown a disciplined and risk-conscious approach to investment management since the strategy's inception in September 2000. Stanek and her core group of collaborators have long avoided making interest rate bets, instead taking a duration-neutral approach relative to the Bloomberg-Barclays U.S. Aggregate Bond Index. Rather than chasing yield through big macro bets or digging into riskier parts of the fixed income market, she and her team seek to add value through sector rotation and security selection. Though Baird Aggregate Bond's investment team doesn't claim the same scale as some of its larger competitors, Stanek's commitment to employee development both on a personal and resource basis fosters a tight-knit team culture with little turnover. These attributes have enriched the team's investment process over time, and Stanek's disciplined philosophy and willingness to add depth to the team's core areas of competence is uncommon and commendable. The long-term success of Barrett Aggregate Bond provides compelling evidence for Stanek's ability to set the standard for investor alignment under her leadership. For the trailing 10-year period through May 2020, the institutional share class of Barrett Aggregate Bond has posted an annualized total return besting over 90% of its typical intermediate core bond Morningstar category peers. PIMCO total return is still, after all these years, a great option. It delivers pretty much everything that PIMCO has to offer in terms of its bond research in a package that's well-suited as a core offering for investors. Technically, it's in Morningstar's core plus or intermediate term core plus category, uh, which means that it's centered around the high quality part of the bond market but has the ability to bring in other things uh, such as high yield and so forth. But the idea here is take those things in proper measure for the risk profile of the fund, but use all the resources that PIMCO has. One of the interesting features about this fund, and a good one of course, is that it's co-managed by Mohit Mittal, who we recently awarded our Rising Talent Award at Morningstar. Uh, Mohit recently took over after the retirement of Mihir Wara, and even though he's technically a new manager on the fund, he's very well regarded both in and out of PIMCO. He's taken on a lot of different responsibilities over the last several years and manages a number of the other managers at the firm, 
and is also widely respected as a terrific generalist, which means he's really well suited to a fund like this that, again, draws on the contributions from teams all over PIMCO. Now, Ben Johnson of Morningstar Research Services maps out the growing strategic beta fund landscape. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. After growing rapidly over the past decade, the universe of strategic beta funds is maturing. Joining me to discuss that topic is Ben Johnson. He's Morningstar's Global Director of ETF Research. Ben, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Christine. Ben, you put out a landscape report uh, recently where you looked at the state of the state of the strategic beta universe. Before we get into that, let's talk about the definition of strategic beta, just to make sure that everyone's following along here. Well, strategic beta, which many often refer to as as smart beta, is is really a, a hybrid of active and passive approaches to portfolio construction. It, it tries to marry the best of both worlds. So the active parent of, of this hybrid beast uh, introduces a bet against just owning the market outright. So that bet oftentimes is underpinned by a, a known factor, something that over longer periods of time across different markets has proven that it can generate some degree of outperformance. So that could be value buying cheaper stocks, could be momentum buying stocks that have been uh, you know, outperforming the broader market as of late, uh, performing quite well. And strategic beta attempts to marry that active bet or those active bets with the best of passive approaches to portfolio construction. So these funds track indexes, they're rules-based. So investors know full well what the rules of the road will be, which enforces a, a bit of discipline that may or may not be present in a traditional active strategy. I think more importantly, it introduces the benefits related to costs that are inherent in passive or indexed approaches to portfolio construction. So the fees tend to be markedly lower relative to actively managed portfolios. And for those strategic beta indexes that are tracked by ETFs, the ETF wrapper lends an element of tax efficiency that investors wouldn't benefit from traditionally in an open-ended mutual fund that's held by an active manager. So again, strategic beta, smart beta, whatever you want to call it, is is really an active approach to portfolio construction that tries to leverage some of the benefits of an index approach to portfolio construction, marrying the best of, of both worlds, or at least trying to. Okay, that's a helpful definition. So let's talk about some of the key trends when you look at this space, um, some of the key trends that you're observing. Well, it's a space that if you look back over a longer period of time has seen absolutely explosive growth. Many of the products that are available on the menu today were launched over the course of the past 10 years or so. Really, strategic beta kind of came into its own in the years following the global financial crisis. If if you look at the U.S. menu of strategic beta ETFs, nearly three quarters of them were launched since 2010. Now, it's a space that more recently has begun to mature. The menu has been saturated. We've seen new product launches slow. We've seen closures actually eclipse launches for the first time in 2019. So we've seen actually an attrition on the menu. Uh, We've seen flows taper, so market share gains have slowed as well. And what we've seen more recently is is flows have have all but 
sort of petered out. So I think the menu is, has been saturated. I think investors um, in many cases have, have been overwhelmed by the amount of choice. Uh, and at the margin, uh, what you've seen is, is those market share gains have, have slowed because people are, are tending and really continuing to prefer more plain vanilla, broad-based market cap weighted index funds that tend to be incrementally cheaper still than many of these strategic beta ETFs. That's a good overview of, of the developments there. Let's talk about some recent developments, um, notable, notable developments, perhaps in relation to what we're living through now in 2020 with the strategic beta universe. Yeah, so if you think about the fact that three quarters of these funds were launched after the global financial crisis, what we saw earlier this year was really the first true test for many of these newer products. And they didn't necessarily pass with flying colors. So if you look at the success rates of strategic beta uh, ETFs across various Morningstar categories, across various strategic beta groups, they look a lot like what we saw from active managers during that period. Again, because these are, for all intents and purposes, active portfolios. It's an active approach to portfolio construction. Uh, in some instances, we saw certain strategies that are, are positioned to take the sting out of market downdrafts, most notably low volatility ETFs, yield mixed results relative to the broader market. Certainly some witnessed relatively less volatility uh, during the sell-off we saw earlier this year. Some actually incrementally more uh, as measured by greater relative drawdowns versus the broad market. And what we've seen subsequently is, is flows have slowed to a trickle, flows into low volatility ETFs in particular, which had been investor darlings now for a number of years and powered much of the recent growth of the category, have actually turned negative for the year to date in 2020. So we've seen nearly $5 billion of investors' savings removed from low volatility ETFs uh, through the first six months of this year, which is a pretty dramatic turnaround um, relative to the trend that had been in place over the course of the past two or three years. What should investors keep in mind if they are looking at this universe and potentially vetting some uh, uh, specific strategic beta funds? Investors need to, to do their homework. They need to really sharpen their pencils and, and do every bit as much of due diligence uh, when vetting these strategies, vetting their processes, which really are defined by their index methodologies, as they would in, when kicking the tires and peeking under the hood of a traditional discretionary active portfolio. Even like-labeled funds, so funds, for example, that fall under the dividend strategic beta group, can yield wildly different results, especially over shorter periods of time. So, an example being through the first six months of this year, the spread between the best and the worst performing U.S. large cap strategic beta ETFs in the dividend group was nearly 30 percentage points. So it's incumbent upon investors, as always, to peel back the label on the tin, understand what the contents are, understand that index methodology uh, to ultimately understand how that portfolio will perform through different market environments, again, no different than they would an active strategy. Just because these funds are nominally index funds doesn't mean that their performance is going to look anything like a traditional broad-based market cap weighted index. 
Okay, Ben, good advice, helpful insights as always. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Christine. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long view with Morningstar's new podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. And lastly, Christine Benz of Morningstar, Inc. encourages retirees to be flexible with their spending plans. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar.com. Amid stock market volatility and exceptionally low yields, some retirees may be wondering if they should be reconsidering their withdrawal rates. Here with me today to discuss the topic is Christine Benz. Christine is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Christine, thanks for joining me today. Susan, it's great to be here. So um, let's step back and start talking a bit more broadly about what are, what are some of the challenges or limitations of a fixed withdrawal rate strategy in retirement? Right. So before we get into that, let's just do a little stage setting about what we're talking about when we talk about a fixed withdrawal rate strategy. That's basically the 4% type guideline that Bill Bengen developed. And the idea is that you take out uh, 4% or 3% or whatever that initial percentage is of your balance at the beginning of retirement. And then you just inflation adjust that dollar amount as the years go by. So that's attractive in that it will ensure that you have a somewhat stable standard of living in retirement. You wouldn't really get buffeted around a lot. On the downside, we've subsequently had a lot more research about withdrawal rates, and a lot of it points to the virtue of being somewhat flexible about withdrawals. So to the extent that you specifically can take less in down markets, that can be really impactful in terms of helping ensure that your portfolio lasts over what is increasingly a long time horizon for a lot of retirees, maybe 25 or 30 years or even longer. And doesn't the data also show that, you know, spending in retirement isn't necessarily flat? It, it changes over time. It does. And that's, uh, I think, a really good point, Susan. Our colleague David Blanchett has done some terrific research where he's actually looked at the trajectory of retiree spending. He calls it the retirement spending smile. But the basic conclusion is that people tend to spend a lot early on in retirement. There's some pent-up demand to travel and take advantage of newfound leisure time. Then that spending trails off in the middle years of retirement. And this is on average. Certainly, there are many retirees who do things differently. But the spending might tend to trail off in sort of the mid-70s period. Health is still good, but maybe retirees just aren't doing as much travel, maybe not doing as much eating out and so forth. And then his research shows that spending tends to increase later in life. So sort of the real world pushback on a fixed withdrawal rate system and that when we look at the data, retirees just don't spend that way. So, you know, given what's going on in the market and sort of spending trends that we've seen, um, how, where should an, a retiree start if they want to start considering adopting a more flexible approach to their withdrawals? 
Well, you know, there are a few different ways to look at it.、Um, you could use a very simple fixed rate withdrawal, where you're just taking, say, three percent or four percent of your portfolio year in and year out. That might be kind of the starting point for thinking about this. The downside with being really dogmatic and taking just a single fixed percentage year in and year out is that you get buffeted around by whatever your portfolio's value is. So let's assume that someone's using four. Percent fixed percentage withdrawal from their portfolio, and their portfolio is a million dollars today. Well, that's forty thousand dollars in their first year. But if in next year their portfolio drops by twenty percent to eight hundred thousand dollars, that's just a thirty-two thousand dollar withdrawal. That's a big change in standard of living. So I think most retirement research, most planners that I speak with, would suggest that doing a fixed percentage probably isn't going to work for many retirees. It just results in too many fluctuations in standard of living. Now, one somewhat simple way to to tackle that,、um, and you've talked about this before, is to adapt some flexibility when it comes to your withdrawal by looking at what's going on in the market, and specifically with what's going on in inflation. How how would someone go about doing that? Yeah, this is、um, some interesting research that T. Rowe Price advanced in the wake of the last financial crisis, where they were. Uh, investigating sustainable withdrawal rates, and they came away with this idea of if a retiree is using a sort of fixed rate withdrawal system, like we talked about initially with with the four percent initially, but that dollar amount getting it, it inflation adjusted. If in those down years the retiree were willing to forego that inflation adjustment, T. Rowe Price found that that really helped improve the portfolio sustainability quite a bit. So retirement researchers have looked at that idea. I think it's a good starting point for retirees who might be inclined to、uh, use some sort of a flexible system. And the other good thing is that we know that oftentimes inflation is low in. Periods when the market is down, so that's another potential、um, advantage in favor of this strategy.、Uh, another strategy that would add some flexibility involves required minimum distributions. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, this is something that our colleague David Blanchett again has looked at, and the basic idea is. The required minimum distribution system is attractive because it incorporates two key things. It takes into account your age, so all else being equal, you're able to take more from your portfolio as you age, as your life expectancy declines. But it also takes into account your portfolio value. So in that respect, it's really quite flexible and quite attractive because it incorporates those two key data points. David has said that he thinks that it's a really simple way for retirees. To incorporate some of the flexibility that we've talked about being so beneficial, and finally, there are some strategies out there that attempt to blend sort of this flexible approach with maintaining a somewhat stable standard of living. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, this is、um, some research that was initially advanced by financial planner、uh, Jonathan Guyton, who we recently interviewed for our podcast, as well as William Klinger, who's a computer scientist. And basically, the idea was they wanted to marry together、uh, a flexible withdrawal rate system, a fixed. 
percentage withdrawal, but put some boundaries around it to ensure that a retiree wasn't disproportionately buffeted around by whatever his or her portfolio value was. So it gets a little bit complicated in terms of these specific guardrail strategies. For people who are interested, they can read the research paper. Vanguard also came up with some interesting research that um, attempted to walk investment advisors as well as investors through the logistics of incorporating such a a flexible system. But I think that this in a lot of ways does bring together the best of both worlds. You are tethering your withdrawals to what's going on with your portfolio's value, but you're also ensuring that you're not having to spend way less than you would hope to simply because your portfolio is down a bit. Christine, thank you so much today for your time, for helping us peel back the onion on how we might think a little bit more flexibly about our withdrawal strategies. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.